0: My name is Timothy, as you saw in the video, and uh, it's my honor and privilege to be with you this morning and to share with you the Word of God. We're continuing in our series in Ephesians, uh, the series is titled, Who Are We? And so I want to take us there. We'll read the Word in just a moment. Uh, before we do that, uh, I want to share a little something with you. So I have a four-year-old daughter. Uh, her name is Ava Grace. And because I have a four-year-old daughter, it means that I'm required by law, I was required by law to watch the new Cinderella movie uh, that just came out last year. We actually now own the movie because of the power uh, that Walt Disney posthumously possesses over my wallet. It's amazing. And uh, we were watching this movie again uh, the other day. And one of the things that is so well portrayed in this movie, in this particular version of the classic story, if you haven't seen it, is the character of Cinderella so ardently knows who she is. Uh, When Cinderella was young, shortly before her mother passed away, her mother told Cinderella that the most important things in life are that we are to be kind and to have courage. Uh, And what you see over the rest of this story is that those two words profoundly define who Cinderella is. She is a woman of kindness and courage. Uh, And despite her wicked stepmother and stepsister's best efforts to redefine her, uh, to define her as a worthless servant, Cinderella refuses to allow them to name her. She knows who she is. And so in spite of this ongoing assault of her character and her identity, she continues to respond to the evil of her family with courage and kindness. And this culminates in the final scene, which made me cry uh, last week. I'm, I'm getting serious. It's good stuff. Uh, and she's leaving the house. Uh, she's The last time she'll see her step mother and stepsisters, and she's going to be with Prince Charming, and she turns back to her mother, and she says these words, I forgive you. Uh, So beautiful, such a deep understanding of who she is, of, of her character, her identity. As I just mentioned, the title of our current series is, Who Are We? One of Paul's primary purposes in this letter is to inform us, those who are believers, in The believers in Ephesus and also the believers today, who we are in Christ. What is our true identity in Christ? And as we see from examples like Cinderella, it is so important for us to know who we are. Because we live in a world that is constantly seeking to name us, to define us. And unless we're deeply rooted in our own identity, we don't stand a chance. So for those of you who are Christians this morning, I want to encourage you to listen to Paul's exhortation and see if it aligns with your own current view of yourself. And then for those of you who are still wrestling with the claims of Christ, those of you who are still trying to figure out if this whole Christianity thing is for you, I invite you to listen with an ear for the identity, this new name, if you will, that is offered to you in Christ. So I invite you now all to stand as we hear God's word. This is Ephesians 2. Verses 15 through 23. This is God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that you might speak directly to our hearts and transform our lives. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as Paul seeks to further answer the question, who are we, this morning, he gives us three main points to consider. First, you've got to know what you know. Secondly, here's what you know. And then thirdly, here's why you know it. You've got to know what you know. Here's what you know. And here's why you know it. So let's begin with this first point Paul makes. You've got to know what you know. Paul has spent the first 14 verses of this letter laying the foundation of our identity as a believer of Jesus Christ. It's such a rich and robust section of Scripture that Daniel preached on last week. We could certainly spend many weeks unpacking it. But now, in verse 15, he begins to shift gears ever so slightly. He begins this section by celebrating and thanking God over the fact that the church at Ephesus has already grasped these beautiful truths that he just laid out. And the grounds for Paul's celebration and thanksgiving is the reports that he has heard of the Ephesians' faith and love. He knew that they had possessed this knowledge, not because they had said so, but because their lives reflected it. But then in verse 17, this strange shift occurs that seems almost contradictory. Paul has just given thanks for how the saints have come to understand the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, Paul says this. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. What a bizarre prayer. Didn't Paul just get through celebrating the fact that the saints already have this knowledge, that they already possess it? And the point that Paul is making here is that we need to know what we know. What do I mean? What Paul is saying is that we as Christians must be pursuing an ever-increasing knowledge of God and of the gospel. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, says it this way. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step. In a stairway of truth, rather it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom as well. And that that church is precisely why Paul can praise God for the knowledge that the saints already have. And at the same time, he can ask God to give them even more. Amen? Christians, we need to hear this admonition from Paul that declares that we have not arrived. And we will not arrive until we breathe our last breath or Christ returns. We are on this journey As we seek to know God and his gospel more and more and more. So we need to, like Paul, celebrate and give thanks for the knowledge that we already have. And at the same time, we need to be vigilant in our pursuit of an ever-increasing knowledge of him. With our goal being, Colossians 1.29, completeness, wholeness in Christ. Church, if you are not hungry for more of God. And if your life does not reveal that hunger through an ongoing pursuit of Him, you need to repent of your arrogance and pride and ask God to once again place that hunger inside of you. We cannot, as Christians, rest on our laurels. That's not what the gospel produces in us. That being said, I think we need to qualify what kind of knowledge it is that we are seeking to acquire. Look again at verse 18. Paul's prayer is that the eyes, (coughs) excuse me, the eyes of their hearts be enlightened. Church, when the heart is referred to in the Bible, it's referring to the emotional, intellectual and volitional center of the person. The place where the mind and the heart and the will intersect and are connected In our culture, we like to dissect and compartmentalize these three as if they don't intersect. But the Bible writers understood full well that these three are inseparably wed. When Paul prays that our hearts be enlightened, he is asking God to do a work in that place. That place where our thoughts and our emotions and our actions are affected. So let's be careful not to interpret Paul as praying that we would just be gaining more head knowledge and that everything then will be fine and dandy. Paul is praying that we would receive this experiential knowledge that shapes our whole person, our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. Which leads us right to Paul's second point here. Here's what you know. So Paul's desire for us is that we would grow in this increasing understanding of God and his gospel. And thankfully, he does not leave us just to discern what the substance of this growing knowledge should be. He lays it out for us here, and he gives us three truths. These are three, three truths that we already know, but we need to know more deeply. And these truths, church, are ones that we should be knowing more and more, embracing more and more, loving more and more for the entire life of our, that we are here on this earth, the entire life of a believer, And they are, this is what he gives us, the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power. Those are the three truths that Paul wants us to grow in, to increase in. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power. What you'll see here, church, is that Paul chooses to organize these truths temporally. Our knowledge of God and his gospel should span the past, the present, and the future. You see, our hope of, of his calling is knowledge of what's happened in the past. The riches of his glorious inheritance is knowledge of what will happen in the future. And then the greatness of his power is knowledge of what is true for us in the present. So I want to unpack each of these as we seek to grow in our understanding of God and his gospel. So let's begin with the hope of his calling. In order for us to understand what Paul is saying here, we first need to define the two key terms, hope and call. Hope, we, I think we know what it means. It's an expectation for something to happen in the future that is normally rooted in our past experiences. I have great hope that the University of Alabama will win the national championship this year because historically we have won more national championships than any other university in America. But that's, that's hope that's rooted in historical fact. Paul, sorry, should have, should have cut that out. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Uh, Paul here wants us to have confident expectation that is rooted in this historical event, which is God's calling upon our lives. So, what is God's calling upon our lives? This is important, church. Calling is a, it's a biblical term, it's an idea that we see throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Here's some verses that I want to share with you. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then lastly, John 6, 44. Even though the word calling is not used, the the idea is certainly here. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So church, I want to offer this definition of calling based on these scriptures and others Calling is a work of God's gracious, sovereign power, whereby he effectively, it actually works, he summons and draws sinners to Christ by his word and spirit. Amen. Calling is this definitive and decisive act when God calls the wayward son or daughter back into the family. So that's, that's what that means. Now that we've defined the terms, I want to take a stab at what Paul is saying here. Paul is asking us, he's pleading with us to grow in this hope that is based on the historical work of salvation that God has done for all of us who believe. So i will to make it plain for you. Paul wants us to grow in our security as sons and daughters of the king based on the fact that God completed everything that is necessary for our salvation. And Paul believes that that truth should profoundly shape the way we live our lives. Church, the reason that Paul begins here is because it is so easy for us as Christians to forget that that work is finished, it is completed, that it was effective. That there is security in our calling and that that security is in God's hands and not ours. I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm getting beat up over and over and over again by the same sin, I so often have a tendency to forget that my calling is sure I begin to forget that I truly am a child of the king, that he loves me and accepts me and receives me. I'm trying to take back control of his calling and assuming that I have the power to maintain my own status in the family of God. But Paul is so careful in his language here to make sure that we get this. Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Or in the Greek, it's better uh, translated the hope of his calling. It's a subtle but huge theological truth here. It is God who called upon you, not you who called upon Him. The validity of our calling is entirely in His hands. The adoption analogy that Daniel shared last week is so fitting. It's not up to the adopted child to, protube, to pro, excuse me. It's not up to the adopted child to prove to the parents that they want to be in the family. That's not the duty of the child. It's the duty of the parents of the adopted child to prove to that child that you are now ours, that you are mine, that you are welcome in the family. We are the adopted child, brothers and sisters. It's His calling on our life. It's His power that makes that valid and secure. That produces hope. Our Heavenly Father desperately wants you to know that He chose you and that you belong and your belonging is not based on your is not based on your performance. Amen. Amen? Amen. We got to grow in that truth, church. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance. So that's the hope of the calling we just talked about now, and that's the past tense. That's what God has done for you if you are a Christian. Now let's look at the future. The riches of his glorious inheritance. Again, we need to define the term here. What is this inheritance? Paul has already mentioned this inheritance twice, and Daniel talked about this last week. But I want to share a couple verses again that I think help us to define this term. First Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's a good inheritance. This is Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Church, did you just hear that? The inheritance that is Christ's is now ours in Him. Everything that God has promised to Jesus, and you can read throughout the scriptures the amazing blessings that are promised for Jesus who is the bride, they are now ours in Christ. The whole world is his. And it will be presented to him. We read about this in Revelation. When the bride will receive his inheritance. And what's crazy is what, what we see further in Revelation is that we get to be a part of that. Revelation talks about how we get to sit on the throne with Christ. I have no idea what that means. But what we do know is that in some way we are grafted into a relationship with Jesus. And we get all of the riches. All of the glory. All of the power. It's given to us in Christ. Church, that is good news. But so what? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we know the end of the story? What is to come? Think about the context here which, which Paul's writing. It was not cool to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. In fact, the Christians in Ephesus were under extreme oppression, constantly in danger for their lives. They were surrounded by a society that proclaimed their views as ignorant and subversive. In in Ephesus, you were supposed to serve the emperor and worship the Roman gods. You did what you were told or else. And the natural feeling of the church in this environment would have been hopelessness, right? It's scary. They might have known confidently in their hearts that the gospel was true, but the end did not look good. The future was not bright, So they were scared to death that maybe even this little movement was going to get snuffed out by the Roman Empire. Church, the scary thing is that our context is is not that much different, is it? Durhamites, we live in a society that is becoming increasingly more and more like the Ephesus of old. Christianity is becoming socially unacceptable and oftentimes laughable. During Durham, our modern-day Roman Empire, is making demands on all of us all the time. For one thing, it demands tolerance of all its residents. And if anyone stands against this idea of tolerance, of, of tolerance, they're put to death, in a manner of speaking. Amen? That's the society that we live in. That's the context that we live in. And it's easy for us to become hopeless. It's easy for us to believe these truths in our heart, but to look at the future, and it's not looking good. I'm not sure Christianity going to make it in Durham. I'm not sure if it might get snuffed out. Church, imagine that you're in a fight to the death. And upon first glance, you see your opponent. And they are far greater and stronger than you are. And it doesn't look good. But then all of a sudden, you turn back and in your corner is Rhonda Rousey. Okay? And she comes over and whispers to you, I got your back. I'm going to take care of it. All of a sudden, Ronda Rousey is a uh, cage fighter, yeah. and wonderful, martial, mixed martial arts. Uh, if you don't know who she is, she's, she's awesome. She's tough. She's got your back. So all of a sudden, you'd be filled with this rene- renewed confidence. You'd know you're going to be okay, right? In some sense, that's the same setting that we're in here in Durham. We look out and it doesn't look good. Our opponent looks far greater and stronger. But Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is in our corner. And he says, I know how this ends. I know the end of the story. We will win. I got your back. And church, when we hear that, we begin to move out with an incredible confidence when we know the end of the story. Which leads us to our third truth that we need to grow in. Paul wants us to experientially grow in our understanding of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Now that Paul has bolstered our knowledge of the past and of the future, he wants to deal with the present. This is what we need to know in the moment. We know that we've been called by God and we know that one day we will win and be with him in paradise. But what about the here and now? And the knowledge that Paul wants us to grow in in the here and now is of the power that is ours in Christ. I read recently that the blue whale, this is interesting if you like biology for a long time science was was thought to be a mute animal scientists believed they did not in any way communicate with one another however it was recently discovered that they do actually communicate at a frequency that is too low for the human ear to hear their voice their voice which i remind you we cannot hear scientists repeat excuse me report can carry over thousands of miles put this into perspective, a blue whale hanging out at the Outer Banks could communicate with a blue whale that is off the coast of England. Pretty awesome. It's a phenomenal power that these animals possess that we didn't even know existed, okay? Similarly, Paul, Paul is telling us, hey, church, you have this incredible power at your fingertips, and you don't even know that it's there. You're unaware of it, so you don't use it. But what is this power that we possess? It's not the ability to communicate underwater thousands of miles. And Paul's going to flesh this out as we go on in the letter, but he's going to give us a little introduction here. And this power that Paul says is the power that we have to overcome, to defeat sin and brokenness. Jesus told his disciples when they prayed, they should pray like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Paul is telling us here is that the power of God to conquer sin and usher in the kingdom, on earth as it is is in heaven, this immeasurably great power is ours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we begin to allow that truth to sink in, we begin to look at our whole world differently, right? We we see things differently. We begin to increasingly believe that we are a force to be reckoned with right we begin to look at the ongoing sin in our lives personally and we believe that we can overcome in christ We begin to look at our city with new eyes that believe in spite of the cultural norms that are being exalted, that Christianity is intolerant and irrelevant, that one day we can overcome and that the truth of Jesus Christ will win out. And we bring that power to bear on our city. We see poverty and crime and injustice and we now possess this power that says in Christ we can push back poverty, we can push back crime, we can stop injustice in Christ. Church, we have that power. It's time we begin to use it. Paul finishes by giving some concrete historical evidence in order to more solidify our knowledge of his calling, our inheritance, and his power. I think what's so beautiful about the way Paul finishes this is that he's demonstrating that faith and knowledge are not in opposition. Which we so often wrongfully think that it's binary, that it's one or the other. We either simply pray and trust God or we study and meditate and we work to a greater understanding. Paul says it's both. Verse 17 and 18, Paul prays that God will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's asking God to pour out that spirit on us, to so open up the eyes of our heart. And then in verse 20, he he argues with us. He gives us concrete evidence, truth of the evidence of God's power. We need both, church. We need God to open the eyes of our heart. And at the same time, we need to labor to increase our understanding of the knowledge of God and his riches. It's not solely that we pray and wait on God to show up. And it's not just that we study and think with no room for the Holy Spirit. These two must be wed. John Stott says it this way. All our thinking is unproductive without the spirit of truth. Yet his enlightenment is not intended to save us the trouble of using our minds. It is precisely as we ponder what God has done in Christ that the spirit will open up our eyes to grasp its implications. Isn't that powerful? So Paul finishes here with this rapid fire list of proofs of God's power. And I just... I'm going to lay these before you, church. I just ask that you would allow them to sit on you, that you would feel the weight of God's power displayed in Christ. Verse 20, God raised raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. God took a dead man who'd been sitting in his grave for three days and brought him back to life and then seated him in the heavenly places on his throne. If there was anything that communicated hope, communicates hopelessness to humanity, it's death, right? We have no power. Not even Donald Trump with his ego and money and power can overcome death, right? But God did in Christ. He raised him from the dead and seated him on the throne. And he sits there now and rules. So then verse 21, he placed Jesus above all rule and authority and power and dominance and above every name his name. This sentence may not make a whole lot of sense to us right now, but what the original audience would have heard is, hey guys, God has is, is placed Jesus over Caesar. And not just this Caesar, but the next Caesar and the Caesar after that. And he's placed Jesus not just over Caesar, but he's placed him over the Roman gods, Diana, Jupiter, everyone that is saying that we should worship them. And the point is that God has made Jesus ruler of all. There is nothing that can thwart his power. No idea, no person, no God. No political power, no government. He is king of kings, ruler of all. Verse 22. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Church, this is the icing on the cake. The point Paul is making here is that this all powerful ruler Jesus is not some far off uninterested God. He's not some apathetic, divine being that could care less about us. No, this ruler of all is in fact the same ruler of this ragtag group of Christians that we call the church. The ruler of all is knit together with us, the church. The king of kings resides over this very local body. He's with us in the battle. He's got our back. the consequences of this truth are so big that this power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and to enthrone Him above is the same power that is at our fingertips. We have to walk in it. We need to believe and walk in the truth. I want to leave you with a practical application. Paul has clearly labeled, he's laid out, we need to know what we know we need this ever-increasing knowledge of God and the goodness of His gospel. How do we cultivate that? How do we cultivate that in our lives? I heard this, uh, recently read about this method that is used to treat certain types of autism. So the, the method is they, the, they will cloud the lower half of the child's eyeglasses. And the reason they do this is because an autistic child can often become deeply entrenched in certain things and activities and those things can become their whole life, whatever's right in front of them. And so what they do is they cloud the bottom half of the lens of the, of the child's glasses and it forces them to look up. To, to focus off of themselves and their own little world and to see the greater world that is around them. I think that's what Paul's doing right here. I think he's trying to get us to look up. To take our eyes off our own little world and see God and see the power that is in front of us and to embrace that And to see that we are able to overcome, that we can conquer Satan, we can conquer the forces of darkness. We have that power at hand. So church, I'm asking you to look up. Look up on Sunday mornings in your own times in the word, in your times of prayer. And see who God is. And see the beauty of his gospel. And see what he has bestowed upon those of us who are called his children. Amen? Let's pray. God, we want to know what we know. Everything that I said, I think, is already known by us. On some level, we know those things to be true, that you have called us, that you have an inheritance that's waiting for us, and that we have power in Christ. But God, we don't really know them. We don't really know the greatness of the power that is at our fingertips. We don't know the beauty of your inheritance, and we oftentimes forget and doubt the sureness of your call. So God, would you help us to grow, ever increasingly grow in our knowledge of you and of your gospel? And would that affect our lives, not just our head, but our hearts and our actions too? Would it change the way we do life? God, I' to pray that for myself and for each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.